Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Colossians chapter 3. It is my intention, and I think we all know how well intentions go, but it is my intention to finish the book of Colossians next week. Soon after that, we will begin the book of Revelation. I was speaking to Jeff the other day, and he said, there's a lot of enthusiasm for you teaching through Revelation. So I'm glad to know that there is that sort of enthusiasm. Years ago, I heard Elder Ward say, I'm old enough now that I know what I believe and I know why I believe it and I can sleep in my own bed. And I'm at that stage. I'm old enough now that I know what I believe, even eschatologically, and I know why I believe it, and I can sleep in my own bed. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to start reading at verse 18, which is the beginning of Paul talking about voluntary subjection. Everybody has someone over them. Everybody has a head over them. Everyone has a master that they are responsible to. There are no free agents in God's world. But within the Christian church, Paul has already said in verse 16, to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, and whatever you do. That's a pretty all-inclusive statement. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all of it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. I think that Paul put that just before these directives to be willingly subservient to one another, to be subject to one another as is appropriate within the church. He made sure first to say, whatever you do and whatever you say, in all of your activity in this life, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And now he's going to tell you what the proper order of things is in this world and within the church according to the Lord Jesus. So if you do all things in your life, everything you do and everything you say is in accordance with the Lord Jesus, then he can now say, now be subservient to one another because that is according to the Lord Jesus. So then wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. But husbands... Love your wives, and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, 
for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they may not lose heart. Now, in every one of those first four statements, he is saying within the church, within Jesus Christ, since you are all unified by the same spirit, since you are all participant in that one spirit, that one baptism, that one salvation, that one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, since that is the case, then all of you recognize that God has put some kind of headship over you. And you are to be voluntarily, in humility, subject to the authority that God has put over you. But in each of these circumstances, when Paul was writing this, it was a very male-dominated society. And yet here Paul is talking about this equality between men and women, which is not standard Greco-Roman thinking. Paul is going contrary to the thinking of his time, contrary to the thinking of the society that he's living in, and not only saying, wives, be subject, because that's fitting in the Lord, but then also, husbands, don't rule over your wives with an iron hand. Don't be embittered against them, but rather sacrificially love your wives. And children, be obedient to your parents in all things, because this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Everybody would say, yeah, the kids need to be seen and not heard and just do what their parents say. But then Paul says that there is this equality in Christ where fathers don't exasperate your children. I don't expect that there was anywhere else in Greco-Roman society where anybody was ever going to hear Fathers, you're the head of the household. Fathers, you own everything. Fathers, you're in charge of the entire household. Oh, yeah, and don't exasperate your children because in a male-dominated society, nobody would tell the fathers what to do. And so Paul is creating this counter-cultural Christianity where he is saying, this is the way you naturally are. This is the way you naturally act. And as a result, this is the kind of society that you live in and have constructed for yourselves because that's the way that best worked for your flesh. But now, don't think in fleshly terms. Now, don't think in egocentric terms. Now, think in terms of service to one another. And then he's going to talk about slaves and masters. And he's going to expand on it a bit more than he does the other topics that he has chosen, husbands, wives, children, fathers, those are all family relationships, but within households you would also see slaves, and so he is going to respond to slaves, and that's what we're going to talk about for the majority of the morning. Because not only does Paul lay out the theology of proper Christian behavior between slaves and masters in the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 here, but he also is going to demonstrate it. He's also going to live it. He's also going to show by example that what he is teaching here is exactly what he believes. Toward the end of this letter, you're going to read a lot of names, Aristarchus and Mark and Epaphras. You're going to hear about Demas and you're going to hear about these various different people. This is not the only place where Paul mentions these people. Remember that Epaphras 
Tychicus. They're from this area. They're from Colossae. But there's one more person, one more very important person that's mentioned at the end of this letter. Starting in verse 8. Well, starting in verse 7. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and our faithful servant and our fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information, for I have sent him to you for the very purpose of informing you what's going on with me, so that you may know about our circumstances, and so that he may encourage your hearts. And with him is this guy, Onesimus. Are you familiar with the name Onesimus? Onesimus was a runaway slave. Now, in Greco-Roman society, again, there wasn't what we know today as a middle class. There was a burgeoning middle class as Rome continued because there were people who opened markets and through their trading in the markets, buying supplies and then selling them and then making a profit. That was the beginning of what we know today as the middle class, but the vast majority of Roman society had the folks on top, the people with some money, the people who really didn't do much at all, who had a tremendous amount of leisure time because the vast majority of the society was the plebes, the slaves, the servants, the people who didn't really own much of anything. And they did all the day-to-day stuff. They ran the households. They did the accounting. They took care of the children. They did all the chores, all the tasks of day-to-day living. And so in that society, there's masters and slaves. And of course, masters would look down on their slaves because they owned their slaves. And now Paul is going to say something astounding. He's going to take masters and slaves, an entrenched idea in Roman society, an entrenched gulf. There is no middle ground. You're either a master or a slave. And he's going to say, treat each other well now because you're both in Christ. And so the same way that he said, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, he's now going to apply that concept to masters and slaves and level out that master-slave division. And not only, again, is he going to lay out the theology, but as we're going to see this morning, he's also going to live out that theology in the way that he writes to the master of Onesimus, whose name is Philemon. We will spend the majority of the morning in Paul's letter to Philemon. But let's start with the theology. Verse 22. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters here on earth. Your masters in the flesh. And don't just do it with external service. Don't just do it to be a man pleaser. But do it from your heart. Do it sincerely because of Jesus Christ. Here's the way he puts it. Not with external service only, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So last week I said, in each of these categories, 
wives submitting to husbands, husbands not being embittered toward their wives, children being obedient to parents, fathers not exasperating their children so that they wouldn't lose heart. Each of those directives Paul gave because that's not our natural tendency. He has to tell us to do these things because that's not the way we are. According to our flesh, we're much more egocentric. We're much more rebellious. No, I'm not going to serve him. Yes, I'm really tired of her. You're my kid. Shut up and do what I tell you. That's the way we naturally are. And so Paul has to instruct us not to be like that. And then he says to slaves, your natural tendency is going to be a man pleaser. Your natural tendency is going to be to do whatever your master says, but not to do it really from your heart, not to do it for the welfare of your master. Rather, you're going to do it just as external service, as man-pleasing service. And Paul says, within Christianity, just like every other natural inclination of human beings, within Christianity, be different. Do different. Work different. Act different. Live differently. Don't act like the world. Don't act like your former self. Don't act according to your flesh. Instead, from your heart, because of Christ, serve your master with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. That becomes the inspiration yet again. So, you don't want to be obedient to your husband? I'm not looking at any particular woman. At this moment, I'm looking for a man's eyes to look in. You don't want to be obedient to your husband? Paul says, for Christ's sake. You don't want to be loving and kind and loving your wife the way that Christ loves the church. You're tired of her. You're angry at her. You're embittered toward her. For sake of Christ, then love her sacrificially and provide for her. Fathers, you want to be mean to your children? You want your children to just shut up and go away? Just let the slaves take care of you. You don't want to exhibit any kind of love or caring for your kids. That's your natural fleshly inclination. So Paul says, I know that's your flesh, but for Christ's sake, be different. For Christ's sake, love, sacrifice for each other, care for one another. It doesn't matter who you are, what situation you find yourself in, and Paul can go to the most extreme of social situations, masters and slaves, and say to the slaves, be obedient to your master. Obey them in all things, not just with external service, not just to be a man pleaser, but do it with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Is it worth pointing out that only if Christ Jesus takes up residence in your heart, only if the Spirit of God is inside you, can Paul expect you to obey any of those commands. Because that's not your tendency. But if you do have the strength of the Spirit of God within you, that governor on your behavior, if you do have the longing, the desire to serve your master, well, then, in whatever social situation you find yourself in here on earth, Christ first. 
Remember last week I was telling you that if you put anything, if you put money, if you put race, if you put any division before Christ, then you're going to get Christianity wrong. It begins with Christ. If you put your husband, your wife before Christ, your marriage isn't going to work. Whatever it is, whatever divides us, whatever is between us as people, if you put that before Christ, you're going to get Christianity wrong. Christ has preeminence. Everything else in your life flows down from that. And so Paul could say, even if you find yourself a slave, do it as unto Christ. And therefore, obey and submit. Not because of the greatness of your master. Not because of the tremendous fairness that he's doling out to you. But do it for Christ's sake. Whatever you do. A moment ago, he said in verse 17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him. To God our Father, verse 23, whatever you do, you slaves, do your work heartily, do it purposefully, do it well, do it with all your ability, as for the Lord rather than for men. There, Paul has now said what I've been trying to say so far this morning. Whatever it is your hand finds to do, do it as unto the Lord knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Slaves, socially, didn't have an inheritance within the master's house unless the master felt like leaving something to them, but usually the master would leave his inheritance to his blood-born children. Slaves didn't typically get anything. Here is Paul yet again using counterculture language and saying to slaves, you know that you're going to receive something from the Lord, your ultimate master. You're going to receive the reward of the inheritance that he has provided for you. And so since he has provided you this eternal reward, then work to him, for him, to please him. Don't be a man pleaser. Don't gauge your life based on what men can do for you or what men can do to you. Instead, modify your behavior according to the fact that the Lord Jesus is your master and that he will give you an inheritance and a reward, and that's why you act the way you do. Because it is the Lord Jesus Christ whom you serve. Ultimately, once you get that mindset, once you get that realization that it is Christ that I serve and it is Christ who is my master and it is Christ who has established my eternal inheritance, then it's a whole lot easier to put up with the trials and the difficulties of this world and to serve the people who, let's be honest, we've all come in contact with people that we find really difficult to deal with, really difficult to be around, really difficult to serve. I sometimes think that in a job like Elizabeth's, where she's working in a bank, there have just got to be, correct me if I'm wrong, there have just got to be customers that she can't wait to see leave. That just has to be the case, right? Am I right? You're not going to admit it, are you? Okay. So, <laughs> we know what it is in life to have to deal with difficult people. We see them all the time. 
<laughs> oh, a minute ago she wouldn't answer, and now she's amening me. So, <laughs> now, if you know that the only reason you're dealing with these people is for what you get out of it right here and right now, you'll stop dealing with those people because there's no advantage to it. Enough is enough. Go away. Leave me alone. But genuine Christian love is sacrificial love and service on behalf of Christ, remembering that Christ himself came here not to be served, but to serve. That he came here and washed the dirty, smelly feet of his apostles. That he came here and laid down his life as a servant for your sake. Now, if he would go that far for somebody as miserable as you, to demonstrate the love of God and the grace of God to somebody like you. How much more should you demonstrate that love and grace in the way that you treat other people? And even if those other people, by your estimation, don't deserve that kindness from you, then don't do it for their sake. Do it for Christ's sake. Because in the end, that's who you serve. And that is who will reward you with this eternal inheritance. So whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong, you slaves who rebel against your master, those who do wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong that he has done, and that without partiality. So Paul says there is a benefit to you to serving your master from your heart. There is a benefit in treating him honestly. There is a benefit in demonstrating your character to him. Because if you do wrong, there are actually consequences of your wrongdoing because your earthly master still does have that power over you. So if you want to avoid the punishment and if you want to gain the rewards, do good. How obvious is that? Just do right. Just treat people right. Just be voluntarily submissive and obedient because that's the way that life goes better for you. Okay, now, if Paul had only said that, everybody in the Roman society would have said, yes, we're for Christianity. We're with you, Paul. Yeah, slaves, be obedient. Yeah, definitely, do that. And then Paul goes all counterculture again. And in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness Wait, wait, no, no, they're my slave. They're my property. They're my chattel. I can do whatever I want with them. I purchase them. I own them. If you want to see how much a master owns a slave, in the book of Exodus, chapter 21, there are rules there about Hebrews owning Hebrews. Sometimes people chose to be slaves because they were in so much debt or they were just so poor, their family was so poor, that the best way to provide for themselves and their family was to be slaves. Oftentimes they would just volunteer to be slaves because they would actually have a better life as a slave. 
they would improve their lot in life. And so the rules in Exodus 21 say that if a man comes into slavery by himself, without a wife, without children, then he leaves by himself. Which means that there's a beginning of the slavery and there's an end of the slavery. In other words, he makes a deal with somebody and says, I'll be your slave for seven years to pay off this debt. And when it's over, it's over. That, that guy's not a slave anymore. My point being, ancient Greco-Roman, even ancient Hebrew slavery was very different than modern concepts of slavery. When we hear the word slavery, we think of modern American and European oppression of Africans. That's not what we're discussing when we talk about slavery in the Bible. And so Exodus 21 says, if a man enters slavery alone, but during the time that he's a slave, he takes a wife and takes children, well then when the time comes for his slavery to end, what he can do is say to his master, I love my master, I love my wife, I love my children, and then his master will take him to the doorpost and put an awl through his ear. That's why so often you see depictions of slaves wearing earrings. He'll put an awl through his ear, and having marked his ear, he is then a permanent slave to that master. Willingly, he chose it because he wants to stay with his master, with his wife, with his children. That's just a better life. And so he will voluntarily become a slave. So you need to know all that when you think about ancient slavery. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness. That's where I left off. That's going to cause the masters to say, no, I own him. No, he's in debt to me. No, I don't owe him. He owes me. And now Paul is putting a responsibility on masters for what reason? Not because of their flesh. Not because of their natural tendencies. Not because of the society. Not because of the rules of slavery. His emphasis again is Christ. Because of Christ and because you know yourself that you also have a master over you. Which is why Paul would so frequently identify himself as a slave to Christ. He used the word doulos a lot. And that is the word that means slave. In the newer translations, you'll see it translated as servant or bondservant. It's still slave. It's still doulos. Paul's attitude was, I can only do what my master tells me to do, and I will do it from my heart. I will do it obediently. I will do it sacrificially. I will do it because I serve a master. Therefore, he could call himself the doulos, the slave of Jesus Christ. Since that is his knowledge and understanding, he can also say to Christian masters of slaves, masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So whether we're talking about slaves, whether we're talking about masters, the overriding reality, the overriding principle, the overarching concept, above all of that is, you say you're Christian, 
Well, then you belong to Christ, and you have to be obedient to Christ. And in your obedience to Christ, here's how you should act in your household, in your family, between your husbands and wives, between your children, between masters and slaves, throughout the society. This is the way you should behave because you're Christian. And the society's not going to act like that, and the world's not going to act like that. Be different. And everything that you do, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it all in the name, by the authority of Jesus Christ, your Lord. This word, Lord, by the way, we use that word a lot. But I think we use it sort of haphazardly. We have forgotten that in the first century, where there was this huge division between masters and slaves, when they used the word Lord, they knew what a Lord was. That was somebody who had absolute authority over you, over your life. This was somebody who could tell you where to go, when to go, when to come back. And again, in Exodus 21, there were slaves who came into slavery as single men who wanted to be married, and then it says that the master would give them a wife. And that's why when they left, if they came in alone, when they left, the wife and the children still belonged to the master. Okay, that's lordship. You get the picture? This is somebody who tells you who you can marry and when you can marry, and even the children of that marriage still belong to him. That's somebody who has complete control over you. That's the word that they keep using for Jesus. He's your master. He's in charge, and you are obedient to him. And even your entrance to God, even your ability to pray to God, even the forgiveness that you get from God, even the grace of God that comes to you, all comes to you through the authority, through the name of your Lord, your master. And that's why Paul would say, you masters who have slaves, fleshly slaves here on earth, grant to your slaves justice. Give them fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. You have somebody you have to answer to. So that becomes the inspiration for why you're different. I think sometimes we read our Bible and we forget how countercultural it is. What Paul has just written right here is only going to be acceptable to people who have the mind and heart of Christ. They're going to take this as instruction. The rest of society is going to go, no, don't say that. The rest of society, you can see why they wanted to kill Paul. You can see why they wanted to stop Paul. You can't say these things. But if you have the heart and the mind and the spirit of Christ, then you accept these things. Okay, so earlier I introduced you to this fellow, Onesimus. Onesimus was a runaway slave. Tom, if you would, turn to Deuteronomy 23, and you're going to read verses 15 and 16. Because in the Deuteronomical law, there is a rule concerning runaway slaves. Again, because the majority of the population was in service to somebody else. Because the people on top who owned the slaves were far fewer than the slaves themselves. Slaves escaping, running away from their slavery, 
was not an infrequent thing. So when Onesimus ran away from Philemon, what you're going to see in the letter to Philemon is that he and Paul are close friends, good buddies. And so the possibility is that when Onesimus ran away and needed to get as far away from Colossae as he could, he got as far as Rome. He may have intended to get to Rome because Paul was there, or he got to Rome and then found that Paul was there. Either way, he has found a friend of his master's who can maybe now repair the breach between him and his master. And so Onesimus finds Paul. And then Paul is going to say that he is my son in the faith, meaning that Onesimus was not a Christian when he found Paul. And then by his conversion to Christianity, he became such a good servant to Paul that Paul didn't want to let him go. He's very helpful to him. But then Paul sends Onesimus back with Tychicus because all of this is taking place in Colossae. This is where all these folks are from. So Tychicus and Onesimus comes back with a letter from your good buddy Paul pleading my case for me. So, okay, take me back. But Paul is also going to say, but now treat me different. So Paul is going to implement the very theology that we just read here in the Colossian book, which is almost like a, it's like a double whammy. If you're Philemon and you get the letter from Paul telling you to treat your slave like a brother in Christ, and then you get the letter to the church in Colossae, which you're a member of. Not only is Philemon a member of the church at Colossae, they're meeting in his house. Oh, it's a letter from Paul. Oh, good. And then it mentions masters and slaves. And it came to you through Tychicus and Onesimus, the slave, who's come back to Philemon. And in Philemon's house, he's got to listen to Paul a second time say, now treat him fairly, treat him right. And oh yeah, make sure you read that letter, that encyclical that we know is the Ephesians letter, that letter that I wrote to the Laodiceans. Make sure that you read that. And what does Paul include in that? Masters and slaves. And masters treat your slaves fairly. I mean, there's really no way for Philemon to get away from this. Every letter that's coming his way is instructing him to treat Onesimus as a brother rather than a slave. All right, that was all introduction. I've got 20 minutes, and we're finally to the text I wanted to get to. Philemon. I mentioned to you earlier that Paul frequently refers to himself as the slave of Christ Jesus. At this very moment, writing to Philemon, he doesn't use his typical opening. His typical salutation in most of his letters not only refers to himself as a slave of Christ, but he also identifies himself as an apostle because he's writing those letters to church groups and he wants to demonstrate that he has the authority to say these things to the church. But here in a very personal letter to a friend, he doesn't feel the necessity to point out that he is Paul the apostle. 
Instead, he's going to identify himself as Paul, the old guy. Okay, not exactly those words, but he's going to say, I am Paul the aged. Paul refers to himself here as a prisoner of Christ. It's one of the few places that he uses that phrase. Rather than say, I am slave to Christ, he says, I am a prisoner of Christ. And I don't think he's using that synonymously with slave. I think he's saying, I'm actually imprisoned at this point. Because in a moment, he's going to talk about how good Onesimus has been to him during his imprisonment. So he's pointing out that I am a prisoner, but he's not a prisoner because of any insurrection against the government. He's not there because he's hurt or killed anybody. He's there because he preached Christ. And because of the preaching of Christ, he is now in prison. So he refers to himself as a prisoner of Christ. Paul, a prisoner of Christ, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. I like the fact that every time Paul puts forward a salutation, Timothy always seems to be there. There's a lot to like about Timothy. No matter what Paul's going through, Timothy's right there with him. And Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved and our fellow worker, Paul is going to use the language of fellow working, of koinonia, of partnership. He's going to use that repeatedly in the letter before he gets to reminding Philemon that Philemon owes his own life to Paul. Before he gets to, I'm sending your slave back, treat him as a Christian brother. Instead, Paul keeps reminding him, you and I, we're partners. You and I, we share a common faith and a friendship. And you are beloved to me. That's a lot of pressure. (laughs) When you've got your slave standing there going, here's this letter from Paul. Go ahead and read it. I'll wait. And then Paul says all this language about do this for me. Because after all, we are partners. We share Christ. We share the spirit of God. To Philemon, our our beloved brother, the word brother is added by the NASB translators. It's just our beloved and our fellow worker. And to Appia, our sister. Most commentaries will tell you that Appia is probably the wife of Philemon. He's mentioning Philemon's family here. It's a very personal letter. And in fact, in a moment, he's also going to mention Archippus, our fellow soldier, That is apparently the son of Philemon and Appia. So this letter is to Appia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that is in your house. Okay, this is a very personal letter. I'm going to ask you to take your slave back and to treat him like a Christian brother and love him the way you love me And oh yeah, read this letter to the whole church that meets in your house so that they can all hold you responsible to live up to everything I'm about to tell you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear about your love. 
And I hear of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship, the koinonia of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. That's a little bit of a convoluted sentence in the English language. What it appears in the Greek is that he is saying, you've come to know Christ and you know every good thing that Christ has done for you and what Christ is doing in and through you. And so I pray that you will share that, the koinonia, the fellowship of your faith, with those who are in your household, with those who are in the church that meets in your house, among those within the society. He's obviously a rich guy. He's got a big enough house for the church to meet in. He's got servants. He's obviously a well-to-do guy. Paul is expecting him to carry the fellowship of Christianity out into his larger sphere because he has the knowledge of every good thing that Christ has done for him. That's a great inspiration. Remember what Christ has done for you, and therefore on that basis, act like it, walk like it, talk like it. I also like the fact that Paul says, I thank God, and I mention you in my prayers every time I remember you, every time I think of you. Paul has such a sense of God's sovereignty that he understands that every time he thinks of his friend Philemon, and that church meeting down there in Colossae that he's never been to. Paul has never been to Colossae as he's writing these things. But every time he remembers it, he thanks God. I thank God always. And I make mention of you in my prayers because I've heard of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and toward all the saints. Paul does this consistently. He talks about the love to Christ, and that's demonstrated by the way you love each other. It's a one-for-one -one equation in Paul's mind. If you love Christ, you love the brethren. If you understand what Christ has done for you and how much he has forgiven you, you will forgive the brethren. If you know that God has put up with you, you'll be patient with the brethren. So Paul ties those two concepts together again. I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward Jesus Christ and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith, the sharing of your faith, may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing, every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and much comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Like I said, this is the household in which the church at Colossae has been meeting. And so the saints have been learning from Philemon, have been learning from Epaphras, have been learning about the Christian faith in the absence of Paul. And Paul is crediting Philemon with the fact that the saints not only have a place to gather, but that they are being built up in the faith because of him. I've come to have much joy and much comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, knowing all that, therefore, 
though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what's proper, Paul says, even though I know you are obedient to Christ, that if I say to you, for Christ's sake, do this or that, you'll, you'll do it simply because you know who I am. I'm an apostle of Christ. You know that I brought you to the faith. Therefore, since I mean that much to you, I know that I could just instruct you to take your slave back and you'd do it. But I don't want that. I want voluntary humility. The same thing that he's talking about in Colossians 4, in Colossians 3. The exact same thing. Husbands love your wives. Fathers love your children. All why? Voluntary humility. Recognizing that you have a master over you. Therefore, voluntarily be humble toward one another. Subject yourselves to one another. Same thing here. He says, I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do the right thing. Yet... For love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Since I am such a person as Paul, the old guy, and now also a prisoner of the Lord. I'm old, and I'm a prisoner, and I can't make you do anything. But if I appeal to Christ, and I point out to you that I brought you to the faith in Christ then I believe that in Christ you would do whatever I command you to do. But for love's sake, for the fellowship of Jesus Christ, for the sacrifice that we share between each other, for love's sake, rather, I'm going to appeal to you since I am such a person as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus. Okay, so think about it. This slave has run away and has gotten to Paul, and Paul has kept him with him for a period of time. We don't know how long Onesimus stayed there, but long enough for Paul to say, he's really useful. I, I really appreciate him, and I don't really want to send him back. Now, where did Paul get that idea? Well, he actually got it from Deuteronomy 23. I'll bet you thought I forgot about you. Okay. In the Deuteronomical law, there is actually a standard laid out about what to do when a runaway slave comes to you. And the instruction is, take him in and let him live wherever he wants. Which is really interesting, again, because there are so many people in criticizing the Bible who will say, well, the Bible supports slavery. Yeah, the Bible also, right in the law, supports defending runaway slaves. And again, our concept of slavery is different than the ancient concept of slavery. Here, Tom's going to read it for us. Deuteronomy 23, he's going to read verse 15 and 16. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in a place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. So according to the law, it would be wronging that slave to force him to go back to his master. So Paul is being very scriptural in what he's doing. He has taken Onesimus in. He has taught him the ways of Christ. 
Onesimus has been converted, which is why Paul can now refer to him not as a runaway slave, but as a son. He is my son in the faith. So I appeal to you for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus. Now, this is a little play on words on Paul's part, and you kind of miss it in the English language, but the name Onesimus means useful. And in a moment, Paul is going to say to Philemon, I know that he's useless to you. <laughs> I know that he ran away. I know he's not been an obedient slave to you. I know that the guy whose name is useful is actually useless. But now Paul says, he formerly was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. He's living up to his name. I'm sending him back, not the disobedient, rebellious slave that left you. He was useless to you when he ran from you. But now because of Christ, now because he's been converted, now because he is my son in the faith, now he's going to come back to you useful. And how do I know it? Because he's been so useful to me. And I've sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart. So Paul is arguing, I love this guy. <laughs> this guy has been not just a useful servant to me. He's a brother to me. Well, he's a son to me. He's a brother in the faith to me. And so now I am sending him back to you, and I'm sending him in person, and I am sending you my very heart, whom I wished to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. I'm in prison for the gospel, and he has ministered to me. He has become a servant to me. He has become a help to me. And so I really want to keep him here. But I'm going to send him back to you so that you and he will be reconciled because after all, the gospel is reconciliation between man and God. Paul refers to the gospel of Jesus Christ as the gospel of reconciliation. And here you have two brothers in the faith, a master and a slave, who are at odds with each other and Paul now wants to reconcile them because that's what is right in Christ. So Paul not only teaches the theology, he acts on it. He believes it to the point where it has become behavioral to him. Whom I wish to keep with myself, that in your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment. I know that you can't be here. You're not in Rome. You're not able to take care of me. But he's taking care of me, and he's taking care of me on your behalf. That's the way I credited him, and that's the way I credited you. I wanted to keep him here with me because it was like you taking care of me, because after all, he's your servant taking care of me. I wish to keep him with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness should not be, as it were, by compulsion. But of your, the NASB at this point says, of your own free will. 
Hakusion, the Greek word, actually means more spontaneously, that you would just react from your heart and just do it. And you would do that because I don't want to make something compulsory to you. I don't want to send him back to you and then command you to take him back. I don't want to send him back to you and say, you be good to him because I instruct you to do it. I want you to take him back as your brother in Christ. Your former relationship was master and slave. And the whole society is built on masters and slaves. And now I want you to treat your slave like family. That's remarkable. Do you get how remarkable this is? Paul is saying, this person you formerly owned is now your brother for one reason. Christ. When I talk about the radical nature of Christianity, it radically changes people. It radically changes societies. It radically changes people's hearts. It makes people change in dimensions that they would not be able to change in their own flesh so that a master would accept a slave as a beloved brother. For perhaps, says verse 15, for perhaps... He was for this very reason parted from you for a while so that you could have him back forever. Look at the sovereignty of God that Paul sees there. Paul is saying in the sovereignty of God, yes, he ran away from you, but God is even sovereign over him running away from you. And God is sovereign over the fact that while he was running from you, he found me. And when he got to me, he was converted to Christianity, proof that this was the eternal plan of God from the beginning, and he sovereignly saved yet another person. And so, perhaps, the whole reason that he ran away from you was to get to Christ. The whole reason that he parted from you for a while was so that then you would have him back forever. He's not going to run away anymore. Because he's your brother in Christ, and you're going to treat him fairly, and he's no longer going to treat you as just a manservant. He's no longer going to treat you just according to the flesh. He's going to treat you with his whole heart. He's going to serve you with his whole heart. He's going to appreciate you. The relationship between you is going to be utterly and completely different because it has Christ at the center. I don't care what relationship you're talking about. Husbands and wives. It's not going to work if you don't have Christ at the center. Fathers and children, it's not going to work if you don't have Christ at the center. Boss and employee even. Christ at the center is the only thing that makes life workable. Everything else becomes conflict. For perhaps it was for this very reason that he parted from you for a while so that you should have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. You're getting back more than a slave. He's going to be a servant to you in the flesh, but he is a beloved brother to you in Christ Jesus, the Lord, the real master the master over you and the master over him. And because you both recognize Christ Jesus as master 
Everything else about your relationship between each other changes and you treat each other from your heart by sacrifice because you both recognize the master over you. If then you regard me as your partner, again, it's a form of the word koinonia. If then you regard me as your partner, accept him as you would me. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul has just taken on the debt of a slave. Remarkable. Of course, then Paul turns around and says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand, which was difficult for Paul to do. And he says, look, I'm writing this with my own hand so that you know that I will repay it. Philemon would be able at any point to yank out that letter and say, look, this is written by Paul in Paul's hand. It's got Paul's signature. Therefore, Paul owes this debt. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand and I will repay it. Lest I should mention to you that you owe me even your very self as well. I really enjoy that statement. Paul says, I'm going to carry the debt of the slave. He owes you nothing. If he owes you anything, I'll pay it. But let me mention to you that you owe me everything. In other words, I brought you to Christ. Therefore, you owe me. <laughs> but, oh yeah, I'll, I'll pay you back. Do you think Philemon ever went to Paul and said, okay, about that debt? I'm sure that at that point, Paul has effectively just erased the debt between the master and the slave. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, lest I should mention to you that you owe me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. And at the same time also, prepare for me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I shall be given to you. Epaphras, you know that name? He's written about in Colossae. He's probably one who was responsible for establishing the church of the Colossians. But he's there in Rome at this point, a fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. He greets you, as do Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. The same people he's going to mention in the Colossian letter because those are the people that are with Paul during his imprisonment at the time that he is writing these letters and sending them to the Church of the Ephesians and the Church of the Colossians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So what was the point of all that? Absolutely everything in life, whatever it is, every relationship, the way you do your job, the way you treat other people, the way you behave with strangers, 
Everything within your life falls under the jurisdiction of Christ. Christ first, Christ preeminently. From that headship, that lordship, flows everything else that is you. And because you recognize your obedience to a master, he can then say, this is how you now live. And the only correct answer is, yes, sir. The only correct answer is your Lord. Jesus himself, while he was here on the planet, said to his apostles that they would say to him, we are altogether unprofitable servants. We have only done that which is our responsibility to do. The remarkable part is the same way that Philemon was changed through Christ and then returned to his master in fellowship, in Christ, in brotherhood, in sacrificial love, you yourself are nothing but an unprofitable servant. And Jesus calls you brother. And that's remarkable. And because of God's grace and because of what he chose to do for you from the foundation of the world, you have been transferred from utter death and slavery in this lifetime to everlasting life, everlasting love, everlasting grace. Paul demonstrated all of that in his little letter to Philemon. He spelled it out theologically in the book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians. But what it's really all about in the big picture is everything about you and who you are has been changed by the fact that you belong to Christ. Therefore, walk as one who is obedient to your Lord and Master, or else stop calling him that. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday Morning Message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.